you know the world as a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses you'd find swine? I don't want you to touch my mother. So go away and warn you. Go away or I'll kill you myself. Morrison isn't the real name. What is it? God knows, we don't. His personal history was falsified. His prints were untraceable. It was possible Morrison had done it before. You can call me sentimental, I don't care. I have beautiful friends, I have a wonderful new family. Oh, that guy in Bellevue that killed his whole family. Cut him up with knives. Maybe they disappointed him. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking bored, paranoid men that don't trust their neighbors. Join the sleaze. <laughs> We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers uh, also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost three years now, which is insane. There's yeah. something like 70-plus bonus episodes waiting for you if you haven't made the jump yet. Uh, again, patreon.com slash podcast. If you haven't done that, I'd recommend it. Uh, and speaking of which, we do have some people who made the jump this week, so we're going to give them their shout-outs here. Uh, we have uh, Paul uh, Merrick, uh, Eddie... Averill, Eddie, a friend of the show. He's actually going to be coming on the show soon. Oh, nice. so thank you, Eddie. Um, Matthias, Brandon Estevez, uh, witty username. Well done. <laughs> um, Louis Adams and Sam DeChristopher. Those are all the uh, new patrons this week. Hope you guys are enjoying all the bonus content. Thank yeah. you guys so much. Thank you. Um, that's the one plug. The other plug for the week, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, um, I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening to this, scroll to the very bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks and, and, and find new listeners, and we appreciate that. Uh, the other plug uh, for the week is uh, the new plug is is merch. Um, if you That's guys right. like the uh, the art that horror artist uh, based out of Toronto, Trevor Henderson, did for us for the show, you can get that pretty much put on anything you'd like: a, sh- a shirt, a, a hoodie, a mug, a mask, whatever you want. Um, the link to that is in the description of this episode, and also at sleezoidspodcast.com if you're interested in anything like that. And whew, all right. It's uh, the intro is becoming a mouthful, but I'm getting used to it. We're That's getting right. through a little bit faster. Uh, welcome back. As always, I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us, and uh, we would have been talking with special guest Violet Luca, who brought uh, with her the other side of the underneath from yeah. 1972 and uh, Biggest one. Luna's. Uh, anguish from 1987 we talked about all kinds of uh sort of metatextual um violence and madness uh taking place uh on the screen and we had a blast talking about with her, that with her we can't really give log lines for either film because they are very hard to describe that way i all i can say is go back and check it out yeah violet had a lot of really uh insightful things to say about those films we were glad to talk about those with her 
Um, so that was last week's free episode. Again, any podcast listener of choice. Uh, and then for patrons last week, we guys, we did your bonus, uh, voted episode because, you know, once every two months we have you guys, um, nominate double features and vote on them, which we're actually having the patrons do, uh, right now as well. They're going through and voting on the next episode, but we did the ones that they voted on previously. And we did Walter Hill's the driver from 1978, as well as Michael Mann's thief from 1981. We talked about sort of, uh, melancholy craftsmen uh yes. navigating their uh their underworlds and it was uh it was a big beefy episode <laughs> oh yeah because we it happens anytime movies. you guys get us talking about michael mann it just happens that way uh, again patreon.com slash lesoids podcast if you uh want to listen to that episode that was last week's bonus episode uh, but this week, we have a very special guest joining us. He is a uh, contributing editor at CinemaScope. He's a writer for The Ringer. Uh, many of you have posted that you've purchased his books in our podcast Discord, so you should be familiar with him. Um, he did uh, the It Doesn't Suck Showgirls, uh, a book that Jamie absolutely nice. has to read because yes. Jamie is in absolute agreement. Uh, but he's also written Good about movie. Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers, Ben Wheatley. Uh, joining us this week is Adam Naiman. Adam, how are you doing? Hey, gentlemen, how are you doing? Good. Thanks doing for great. coming on. As well as we can be, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my pleasure. It's, 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 it's a very idyllic Friday. I'm looking out my office window at some snow. Yep. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just in a, in a, in a, in a nice mood. That's right. Well, hopefully we don't ruin it by getting into the <laughs> deep underbelly of um, <laughs> suburban uh, American life no, right. I, this week. No, I, I can't. I can't wait. <laughs> um, but yeah, Adam, as the show goes, we have the guests bring on the double features with them. So what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair them together? Well, it's a pairing that while I've seen alluded to here and there, I hadn't really seen it front and center anywhere. And it just seems very intuitive and fun, uh, which is to take Alfred Hitchcock's 1943 film Shadow of a Doubt, which depending on where you read, you'll find Hitchcock sort of saying either that he thinks it was you know one of his favorite of his films, perhaps the best realized of his films um a very transitional work for him in that it was maybe the first fully american of his films or it's a movie that has americana kind of deep in its marrow Mm -hmm. and uh and pair it with um another movie about kind of uh suburban america uh in a very different time and place and political context and also that contains i think some pretty deliberate references to shadow of a doubt which is joseph rubin's the stepfather and the mm-hmm. common denominator between these movies, we might say, is a small town setting as a, not exactly an incubator, but a, a habitat and a kind of a, a, a hiding place for sociopathic characters who are, let's say, apt to, <laughs> um, apt to exercise their frustrations with, with the world around them in, in, in very violent ways. In uh, Shadow of a Doubt, you have a character played by Joseph Cotton, uh, whose name is uh, Charlie Charles Oakley, who we don't know this specifically about him from the beginning, but uh, you know he seems to be in some kind of shady situation or trouble. We find out later this owes to the fact that he is moonlighting as a, as a, as a serial killer, the so-called Mary Widow killer. And as a way of evading the heat and discovery, he hides out 
in this little town, Santa Rosa, California, with his family, where his past and reputation kind of catch up to him, seen from the point of view of his niece, who's named for him. His, his, his niece is also named Charlie. And um, the movie kind of ping-pongs between the point of view of these two characters, but settles mostly with her after, after yeah. introducing him. And uh, as she comes to sort of realize what the movie has had us suspect about her uncle from the beginning, which is that he's a very bad dude, and the, the, the terror and the disillusionment of that and the creepiness of uh, these two characters who share a name, who share a real kind of relationship and affection for each other, almost as if she's measuring the possible distance between herself and her namesake. Like, if I identify with this man, am I a little bit like him? Mm-hmm. A- and then in The Stepfather, you have a movie that's much more from the point of view of the, 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 the killer, this, uh, this shape-shifting... Uh, you know, na- 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 name-changing, highly malleable character, uh, Henry Morrison, later also who goes by the name of Jerry Blake, uh, who kind of moves from family to family and town to town until he finds a family that won't uh, disappoint him to the point of him killing them, right? <laughs> and, and Every man's uh, struggle, you know? And the so, so he's the Uncle Charlie figure in that movie, and then the young Charlie figure is his stepdaughter, uh, Stephanie, who, like young Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt, suspects that this father figure, more literally a father figure in this case, but a stepfather, is harboring some dark secrets, is up to some bad stuff. And I wouldn't say that the psychological architecture of the stepfather is as complicated as Shadow of the Doubt. I mean, Shadow of a Doubt's really a movie about character. The stepfather is kind of like, you know, will the cops find out in time? <laughs> you know, will, will, <laughs> yes. will, 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 our, will our madman be stopped? But um, it kind of has a, a similar, and I think in its own self-contained way, really kind of delightful and, and Hitchcockian relationship to, um, I, I would call it like the suspense and, and dread of normalcy, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the idea that these very normal, banal, everyday situations, um, you know, have this lurking threat of violence and exposure within them. So they're both kind of like... Uh, Small town studies, they both um, are, are studies of sociopathology. They have these wonderful kind of paranoid set pieces to them. And I think they're also both very funny. And I think maybe talking about the comedy in both movies would be would be fun because rewatching both of them in preparation for this, I found myself sort of just delighted by their by their by their wittiness, which is maybe more refined yeah. in shadow of a doubt. But Stepfather's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. In a very perverse way it is. Yeah. I mean, after you get over the initial shock of the stepfather, the actual sort of like suspense sequences that take place, it doesn't quite get to as shocking of a place as you are in that opening scene, which maybe we'll get to when we, when we jump into the stepfather, but that's a great intro. And I think we're going to start off by jumping right into it. Like we usually do. We're going to start, I think chronologically here, and we're going to start with uh, shadow of a doubt. So let's do it. Do you know the world as a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses, you'd find swine? I don't want you to touch my mother. So go away, I'm warning you. Go away or I'll kill you myself. Your hands. Let me go, Uncle Charlie. Let me go.
All right, we are talking Shadow of a Doubt, the 1943 American psychological thriller film noir, as they have listed here, directed by uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, obviously, the film, um, very loosely, as uh, Adam kind of laid out in the intro there, um, follows Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton, both playing characters named uh, Charlie. Uh, Joseph Cotton is, is Uncle Charlie Oakley, a very sort of a suspicious man who is making his way back to... Is, is it is it ever said that it's their hometown? Is Santa Rosa, California, where the whole family is from? Yeah, I think that he makes reference to... Uh to some some street he's talking to his sister to young charlie's mother and saying that you know once upon a time she was the the the, the prettiest little girl in the neighborhood or the prettiest girl from that gotcha. place so i think the idea is that charlie started there went out in the world and and came back but i'm not sure that it's supposed to be his childhood home that he's referring that that, that he's returning to Right. Well, either way, he he returns to Santa Rosa, California, where his niece, um, Charlotte, uh, or Charlie, uh, named after him, is uh, very excited to see her uncle return home. Uh, But very quickly, she uh, gets a kind of sense that something is is off about this return. He is on the run from these two uh, dudes who you're not really sure exactly what they are. We come to learn that they're detectives at a a certain point. But what I found most interesting about Shadow of a Doubt, especially the first time I watched it, was that you know, Hitchcock, especially at this time, was very well known for kind of like the, the wrongly accused kind of man. It was a man on the run. So when you first open and you see Charlie, uh, you know, it's it's this, this great kind of like um, wordless shot of, you know, it has sort of like the high society dancing, but then it kind of blends into, you know, this big pan of kind of like the outskirts of like this polluted city. I think they said they shot it in like New Jersey. There's like broken down cars and then there's this, you know, dilapidated buildings and then there's Charlie. You know, he's sitting in, you know, this sort of like motel room. He's smoking a cigar alone. There's this great push-in on him. There's a pile of money right next to him. It's essentially doing that same shot uh, that we're going to be talking about next week from like... Uh, rear window where you kind of get all the information about uh, Jimmy Stewart's character just panning over the things that are on his desk and you see that this guy doesn't think too highly of money or he has a lot of money and he doesn't care about it yeah just tossing it on the ground yeah yeah, and and you, you get the impression right away that this is just another one of Hitchcock's men on the run you know you're not exactly sure why but he's on the run from something. And, and I love the sort of sense of ambiguity that he gives to you before eventually exposing this film as Adam kind of laid out. We're about to find out that this is much closer to, you know, sort of like the precursors of what would become something like The Stepfather, something like serial killer films mm-hmm. from the point of view, something that he would obviously uh, very much coin in, in, in Psycho. Well, I mean, what's interesting about that opening sequence, which I which I love, and even before the opening sequence, you alluded to the kind of the credits which play under this waltz, right? Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, it's funny, David Lynch has said that Shadow of a Doubt was a big influence on Blue Velvet, and that's true, but this also this kind of uh, sort of floating, almost purely graphic opening sequence of these waltzing dancers reminds me of the Jitterbug at the beginning of Mulholland Drive, sort of yeah. just a this kind of like this sort of weird disconnected not really narratively driven vision of 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 ballroom dancing which creates kind of like a stately elegant whimsical kind of yeah. you know precursor to what comes and bears out in the rest of the movie through the use of the merry widow waltz and um the idea of the merry widow killer but when you get to the the scene you're talking about um 
yeah, he's not the wrong man, right? He's kind of the right man in this case, or, or he's, he's not wrongly accused of anything. I mean, he's exactly what he appears to be, right? Which is, you know, kind of a scumbag. And one who's um, very idle in that opening scene. I mean, for a guy mm-hmm. on the run, he's sort of completely horizontal <laughs> and yeah. um, very contemplative and pensive. And I mean, in a, a couple of minutes after that, he kind of gets up and makes his escape, which is a really good scene. Um, it shot really the high roof angle where you see the guys yeah. converging and he's gone and he's kind of watching them from this elevated perch. Like, you know, he's he's way above them literally and, and figuratively. Yeah. But like in that first scene, he's just kind of like sitting around being bored. As you say, he's kind of bored with, with money, but it's also this kind of um, – very retiring attitude he has towards the world, you know? Like, he just kind of wants to sit around and stew in his misanthropy. And when he's on the train to Santa Rosa a little later, it's also all about him hiding out. Like, he pretends to be sick, right? Which is <laughs> yes. which is partially to avoid detection, obviously, and there's a motif through the whole movie that you would have in a movie like The Wrong Man about trying to avoid detection. But, you know, he also just doesn't like people. He, he, he doesn't like engaging with them. I mean, in mm-hmm. a, uh, and then when he finds the people who he likes, you know, when he, when he gets back to Santa Rosa and finds his family, um, you know, there's like this weird mix of affection and kind of contempt that he has, like for his sister's uh, mm-hmm. husband, for, for Charlie's father who works at the bank. He's like nice to him, but kind of, you know, hectors him a little bit when he comes to visit him in his place of work and talks about how he doesn't like the bank and how he doesn't like money. Like he's very performative in that sense when he feels he has the power in a particular situation or group of people and so like because young charlie the Teresa wright character who's very precocious and who idolizes him because she's kind of the dominant figure in her household right not in terms of authority but in terms of personality and because she totally idolizes him and loves him he kind of swoops right in and he's just like at the head of the household you know, mm-hmm. he, yeah. he, 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 he shows up and he's kind of special and it's a big deal that he's come there and everyone's kind of happy to see Uncle Charlie. So he's a bit more in his element. But the performance by Cotton just radiates with such misanthropy and contempt and, and disinterest for other people. And that's why the shift to Teresa Wright is such a relief because a movie from, from Uncle Charlie's point of view would be extremely uncomfortable and as it is, the movie that Hitchcock made is still uncomfortable, but in a different way because we're with this character and we're sort of wondering, well, what does she see in him? And when is she going to stop seeing it in him? You know, because if because because she's she's our conduit into the movie and her love for her Uncle Charlie is very complicated. And I love that. Yeah, I, 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 go ahead, Josh. Oh, oh yeah, I was just going to say, I, I really love that Hitchcock gets at that sort of contradiction between those two characters in just like the the sort of like broad structure of having this man return back to his hometown he observes the sort of cartoonishly pure like family unit and he looks at it both in a sense that it's kind of adorable it's 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 trusting but it's also naive to him in in a way um he he kind of sees it and he likes it it's he sees that as something other people want to believe in almost is kind of what he looks at it and sees. And I love watching Khan's performance in where he will like 
you know, he will flip from kind of this performance of the sort of domestic kind, the cool uncle who comes in. He brings everyone presents. Everyone loves him. He comes to the town and they have like a welcoming home ceremony for him because he's just such a cool guy and everyone knows him. And it's such a small town that the local traffic cop knows everyone's name yeah. and everything like that. But then he will flip in his performance to just something that's so menacing and so sociopathic so quickly. Like when he uh, looks at, you know, his his sister and finds out that, you know, there's two men who are coming pretending to be these guys taking this sort of national survey and he realizes right away that these are the detectives looking for him and she's just like he's like you welcomed these two men into your home and just said yeah walk around take pictures ask us incredibly invasive questions even though you know naturally she's just like i'm just doing a survey uh, they said that they liked our family and that I wanted to show our family off and take a picture of our family because we are a, a postcard perfect looking family in an amazing town and everything like that. She doesn't quite understand. But what's so fascinating about the way that Hitchcock develops this and in, in the way that he you know, did in so many of his films where he got you, welcomed you into that very subjective psychological process of sort of like the, the form as the mind at work. And by letting you go into, as we break into sort of like the young Charlie's um, point of view, I, I really love how Charlie is the one who she spots the seams. She sees the performance that he's putting on. She, she sees the sort of the seediness start to spread and kind of infect her home. Yeah, like one and, of my favorite shots is the, the initial uh, um, meeting of Charlie and Uncle Charlie when he goes off of the train and he's still kind of playing sick. Like he's, he's kind of limping and he's kind of hunched over <laughs> because he's still playing that character for the people on the train. And as he slowly approaches Charlie, he gets more and more proper and becomes the, the uncle that she, you know, knows and yeah. loves quote unquote. Well, it's like, uh, it's like the last shot of the usual suspects in reverse. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah. they, you know, but, but Hitchcock also, and this has been, I mean, anyone who writes about shadow of a doubt writes about this, but he, he creates that, that relationship between them, which is partially one of complicity and partially one of exposure and discovery by introducing Teresa Wright in the same position that he introduces Cotton. Right. Yes. I mean, yeah, she's the lying, exact same push in she's, on her bed. Same push in. She's lying there almost as if she's daydreaming about or wanting to, to summon him. And that's referenced several times in the dialogue that, you know, she's going to go send a telegram to her uncle Charlie cause she's bored, but he's already on the way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he, he descends into this picture, as you call it, this picture postcard town. And the mapping of that town is where Lynch definitely took something from shadow of a doubt. The opening montage of blue velvet is like a color version a Midwestern kind of color version of the black and white montage at the beginning of Shadow of a Doubt that shows, you know, the crossing guard and the cars and the town. It's very similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Char- Charlie descends into that. And at first, what passes between them is one kind of recognition, which is we are the same. And then the rest of the movie is a different kind of recognition, as you alluded to from young Charlie's part, which is we are not the same. He is very different, but does the fact that I can tell this about him and see this about him and does the fact that I'm keeping it to myself indicate that actually we, on a deeper level, we kind of are the same? Because the whole Mm -hmm, suspense of the movie pivots on young Charlie kind of not saying anything, which is similar, which is similar to the withholding and the kind of uh, the, the, the secretiveness of her uncle. I mean, in this case, she's being secretive about what he's secretive about. 
<laughs> but it's a but but it's a it's an interesting form of suspense. The movie is much shorter, and again, I'm I'm not being what one of Hitchcock calls the plausibles, where it's like the plot doesn't make sense. I think the plot in Shadow of a Doubt is great, but it's a much shorter movie. If Charlie is the kind of person who immediately runs, to, if young Charlie is the kind of person who immediately runs to the authorities about something. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and the thing that's interesting is what it kind of codes a little bit is this idea that, you know, I mean, he, he, he talks to her and he, he praises her for being kind of smart and for being witty and for being someone who, you know, has the similar skills that he has that he then uses to murder and cover up his murders. Um, But it's like, would she then notice those things if she didn't have those skills, right? It becomes a thing of, you know, like, you know, those skills make her spot those seams. And, you know, and also in, in some ways, you know, uh, guide her to feel um, it necessary to, you know, slowly pull at them and unravel them until, you know, her kind of her, her world kind of breaks down. I think of like that that bar scene where he just basically straight up admits that he's the killer right in front of her and very uh, brutally you know, tries to break, you know, what we have seen this far, which is the, you know, this sort of domestic suburban dream, this, this yeah. sort of idea of the what? picture postcard perfect thing where it's, it's hiding or harboring much darker sort of sicker things. And not only is it sort of a, a sort of precluding things like David Lynch's Blue Velvet, I also thought a lot of Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Watching oh, yeah. this. Yeah, for sure. So, Sam, Sam, Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss and and here I would say much less of a direct influence because there's I, I would not remotely say that the film I'm about to mention was, was influenced by Shadow of a Doubt but an interesting mm-hmm. similarity in terms of the period which is Chaplin's Monsieur Verdoux right which is also right. based on a real life serial killer uh, a serial killer who like the serial killer that Shadow of a Doubt was based I'm trying to remember his name he was known as the Gorilla Man uh, who was a killer in the 1920s Earl Nelson was sort of the loose basis for Uncle Charlie in the same way that Ed Gein was the loose basis for Norman Bates and Psycho. But even mm. in Monsieur Verdoux, you have this this literal lady killer who ultimately kind of says, and it's not to another character, it's to a courtroom basically, but he's like, you know, the world sucks and people do terrible things all the time and most of the people who have these terrible things who happen to them, you know, kind of deserve it. And, I mean, that's sort of the substance of two of Uncle Charlie's speeches as well. Right, he kind of passes the buck to the universe in terms of what he does. Mm-hmm. He says people are horrible, people are livestock, basically. And I love that line where he calls them fat, wheezing animals. Because if you remember, Hitchcock famously said actors were basically cattle. <laughs> you get you yes. get you get a teeny little bit maybe of Hitchcock's um, Hitchcock's misan- misanthropy there. But that scene at the bar, where as you put it, it, he just simply breaks the 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 illusion. He's like, yeah, I straight up did that. So what? It is a break. It, it, it is a break, but it's also for a terrible moment. It's almost like an invitation, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like, "I don't really like you snooping around me at the house and trying to find the newspaper that has my picture hidden on it that I'm trying to hide from you. I don't like you looking at all my stuff in this little emerald ring and you know paying attention to what I'm whistling. So like, I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing and what are you going to do about it? And is this maybe a little interesting to you?" Because there's a there's a seductiveness, but Uncle Charlie and a barely sublimated incestuous kind of sexual element to the movie that is much better for being sublimated and subtle, but it's quite perverse. Mm-hmm. And he's taking her out for a drink, basically. And yep. the bartender is very sexualized in that scene, too. Is she, I can't remember, is she, I don't think she's a classmate of young Charlie, but you sort of get a sense that she's like a local girl. 
Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely know each know other. Charlie. Yeah, and and yeah. she she mentions that you know they kind of mention that they Charlie has kind of taken him to like kind of like one of the seedier bars because yeah. it's the one that she's been the one that she got a job at after being fired from like five other That's ones. Right. Yeah, yeah, and after after being fired. So I mean, a bar is a very grown up space to take yeah. your teenage niece, right? Yeah. And so it's a form of a seduction or a bit of an initiation or it's because it's a lot of things at once. Shadow of a Doubt is a movie that is a lot of things at once at a lot of different times. And it's also mm. just straight up a challenge to her, right? Yep. In a different movie. Like what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what are you going to do? And the answer to that is quite troubling, which is for a lot of the movie, I mean, I'm simplifying when I say this, but for a lot of the movie, she does nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, she worries, you know? <laughs> Yeah. She she worries and she, she she thinks about what to do, but you know she's not empowered in the same way that the the boyfriend the movie contrives for her this young, um, you know this this young investigator this young detective. I mean he in plot terms can kind of do something about it. Uh, she she can't, and I think that that is where that wonderful passivity that Hitchcock is great at comes in, where you are now just with someone watching something bad happening, thinking about that badness, thinking about their complicity in it, and having a really hard time acting, also because she doesn't want to fall out of love with this uncle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, think, who- I, think, I think the love is a really important part of that, too, because I, I think a huge part of it, actually, and a huge part of her passivity is that you know, uh, Charlie, uh, Uncle Charlie, you know, he was very much willing to break that image in that sequence with her. She is much less willing to, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a dark coming of age thing where she's being exposed to the darker things hiding underneath that 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 surface. But at the same time, like I think of that moment when, you know, Uncle, she does get Uncle Charlie closer to the end to leave. And yeah. he announces that he's leaving and how heartbroken you know, his sister is and Charlie's mother is and Charlie watches her mother breaking down in this thing. And she knows that, you know, on some level by exposing uncle Charlie, she will be the one actually breaking that picture. Perfect image that in in some ways, because Charlie, uncle Charlie can perform um, because, you know, they, they sort of, it turns into a little bit of a, of a game that Hitchcock kind of lets you in on because, you know, both of them are, are, you know, they're, they're deemed smart. They're the ones who can navigate this kind of hidden world just beneath the surface there. And they both put on, you know, performances at the dinner table. I love that. Yeah. I think Adam just mentioned it though. The one where he gets the big monologue where he, yeah. he breaks his facade very briefly at the dinner table with everyone. I love his sister's reaction too, which was basically like, well, don't say that in front of my women friends. Yeah. Cause he goes on this giant misogynistic rant about, you know, all the, the sort of widows who are just eating away at their, you know, their husband's money that they spent a whole life working for. And he, he calls them fat wheezing animals. And then he says, not only that, what happens to animals when they get too fat and old and Charlie, you know, she's the only one who kind of knows what it is that he's saying. Cause you know, uh, they're kind of talking, uh, I mean like Charlie's father, uh, at the table is constantly talking about like murder mysteries and like making up stories and things like that. It's so much of the family is kind of treating his monologue like that. She sure. knows that he's basically admitting that he's a killer. And so she says they're alive. They're human, aren't they? And Hitchcock, this amazing moment where it's a profile shot of him completely from young Charlie's point of view, looking at him at the dinner table, this slow zoom in on his face as he looks directly down the lens and says, are they? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it it, it, it th- thank thank God the movie's not more famous, or that would be a meme, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. are, are they? But I mean, that's actually a moment too that is one of the few cases in an otherwise very evenly directed movie that um, he goes for a kind of stylistic brio. You know, yeah. I mean, the the Hitchcock of nineteen forty three was established as a. I mean, a great filmmaker. He had won a Best Picture Oscar for Rebecca, and he was probably, you know, in the handful of, of directors working both in the UK and then in the Hollywood system who people would know at that time as a director before the cult of auteurism was officially born. But he's not yet the exceptionally self-conscious Hitchcock of the late 40s and early 50s. And Shadow of a Doubt has such an efficient, humming, machine-like quality as a suspense film, I always find when I rewatch it, it's so evenly directed. It's not really a film of set pieces, you know? Mm-hmm. If you compare it to something even like Strangers on a Train, which I think is a good comparison, not just because it ends on a train, but because Joseph Cotton's performance has a little bit of what um, Robert Walker did in Strangers on a Train. Walker's more flamboyant, but it's both these characters who are just completely open at certain times about how much they hate other people. Um, yeah. You know, Strangers on a Train is like a set piece movie. It is a movie of spectacular choreography and camera movements and close ups mm-hmm. that play with with perspective. There's a lot of really agile directing in Shadow of a Doubt. And I'm not when I say it's evenly directed, I don't mean that it's it's indifferently directed. But it's mm-hmm. not like one of those Hitchcock highlight reel movies. And there's nothing wrong with those movies. But that's, I think, kind of what's so unique about it, which is it's everything that's kind of amazing and, and mesmerizing about his filmmaking, but feels all completely in the service of the story and the characters. It doesn't step outside of it with that kind of showmanship he had later on. I don't know if mm-hmm. that struck you when you watched it, but it's actually one of the things I really, really like about it. Yeah, no, definitely, because I, I, I noticed that, you know, there there is sort of like this this sort of baseline of the town and you know he only ever gets into that sort of that style breaking when there is this idea of Charlie and Charlie kind of facing off kind of psychologically and now really they aren't really doing anything necessarily like sometimes it's just a lot of young Charlie looking at him and being very concerned about you know the fact that he's a killer and what's he going to do next or something like that but he'll get at that through you know like a you know, a way to use the camera that signals that they are connected in this scene, despite there being so many other people involved in the scene. There will be like a moment where she looks down at him and there will be sort of like a dolly push in on him in the distance, standing in like a doorway where he he looks kind of creepier and posing because we're getting into her mind and what she's feeling about him. But really, he's standing in the doorway. (laughs) I really like (laughs) the the portrayal of her progression of being suspicious of of Uncle Charlie. Like initially when, when they first meet, you know, she sees a few things here and there and she suspects that he's hiding something, but there's still like this... uh, this this innocence to her like as she's asking him initially what he's hiding i'm going to find out your secret she's got this big smile on her face you know For it's sure. almost like there's like a there's a playfulness to it a little bit and then as it progresses it just gets darker and darker until the point where every time she sees uncle charlie her her giant smile that that Teresa just has in her in her character just goes away the innocence is gone um, and i loved seeing that progression it's uh it's saddening for sure 
Well, and when you talk about the 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 way that they're focused on the scenes, kind of isolate the two of them as if they have an eyeline match or a, a secret mm-hmm. understanding between them. That's paralleled with the absolute obliviousness of those characters, as you say, are just constantly talking about here's how I would plot a perfect murder. Yeah, right? yeah. Here's how I'd <laughs> which murder is, my best which, friend. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is all, a, all those characters exist in uh, the "It's a Wonderful Life" version of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they exist, but what they also exist is they exist in a kind of Hitchcock repertory that hadn't quite been invented yet, because this is before Rope, which is literally about let's talk about a murder, <laughs> and it's yeah. before the talk. You know, it's before the discussions in Strangers on a Train of trying to plot mm-hmm. the perfect murder. I mean, it's a preamble to those later and in some ways more famous movies. And in this film, it's very it's very innocent, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like these people are talking about this because they would never do it. Right. And Uncle, Ch- and Uncle Charlie doesn't engage in the conversation because he's done it already. And it contextualizes the, the harm that we fear and that as the movie goes on, we, we're right to fear that he's actually capable of doing to his niece. Because I would say the love in this movie does go two ways, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to just call out the, the romantic or, or quasi-incestuous subtext between them, it's not just a young, impressionable girl with a kind of handsome, charming uncle. I mean, the movie... Uh, very much, you know, is focused on Teresa Wright's face and her body. No less than Francois Truffaut when he interviewed Hitchcock said, "Boy, she's got a pleasing shape, doesn't he?" You know, he, he said that to, to 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 Hitchcock, which is one thing if you're talking about you know a grown up actress like Grace right. Kelly. But I mean, Teresa Wright is playing a teenager. Yeah, which also and, uh, leads that uh, that FBI agent to be a pretty sus character himself. He, he, he is a pretty <laughs> sus character. Yeah, but when you but when you counterbalance. The incredible misogyny of the Uncle Charlie character that is all about the appearance of the women who he kills, mm-hmm. right? Because he doesn't come out and say, you know, the world's a crappy place and milkmen are assholes and your pastor is an asshole. He's like, these old ladies are the worst, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. And and some of what he seems to feel towards his own sister when he says, oh, once upon a time, you were really pretty. You were the prettiest girl. You're not now. I mean, he doesn't say that. But there's a condescension to it when he's talking to his sister. Absolutely. You know, he, he's, he's clearly kind of fixated on his niece too. And that's where you get the kind of sexualized compulsion towards violence that Hitchcock, for whatever reason, not to imply anything or try to separate or disseparate art from artists, but, you know, he was really, really good and fascinated at that. <laughs> at, <laughs> yeah. men, at men wanting to kill women who have... Uh, you know, either offended some some sense of theirs or who or who knows something about them. I mean, you think about a movie like Strangers on a Train, the murder in the amusement park. It's one of the most, like, you know, sexualized murders I've ever seen in a movie in terms of it just seeming to come straight from, like, how much this man hates the kind of woman she is, much on top of, completely aside from the plot context for the murder. And uh, there's some of that in Shadow of a Doubt, too, for sure. Yeah, that, that was my experience watching uh, late Hitchcock. Very oh, uncomfortable sure. to watch something like uh, Frenzy. Frenzy, yeah. Yeah, or just horrible. Or Marnie, too. Oh, yeah, very, Marnie. Very wow. horrible. Or, or, or Marnie or, or Psycho. And again, it's mm-hmm. not about psychoanalyzing Hitchcock. I mean, for one thing, there's a half dozen books that do that. And sometimes <laughs> it's also kind of futile. But in Shadow of a Doubt, because it doesn't have... Um, because it doesn't have some of the really ornate mid to late Hitchcock isms in it. And because it's not a very explicit movie, I mean, it's pretty well behaved. It's black and white, 1943. Like, it's not overt mm-hmm. in its violence. All that stuff really seems to belong to the character instead of the filmmaker. I think, and this is a weird way to say it, it has one of the more pure, dramatic 
motors and dramatic senses of any Hitchcock movie. It's actually one of those movies where you don't have to fill in weird motivational exposition problems or plot holes because on that level, it's all so tight. Yeah, well, and, and this was partially written, I read, by uh, Thornton Wilder, right? Yeah. He's, Amer- he's American playwright, so that was where he got a lot of that kind of like small-town Americana um, kind of aspect, too. And I also noticed, because we talked with Peter Labuza about it recently, too, that he, this was the first film he made after actually parting ways with uh, Joan Harrison, too, who wrote a yeah. lot of uh, his thrillers, because um, we just talked about uh, Phantom Lady, which she, of, which, of uh, she ghost wrote. Um, well, well, Wilder will be interesting when we bridge to the stepfather, uh, for sure, but it is, but it is funny that it would be Thornton Wilder to write this because of course our town, his play is such a, I wouldn't call it unambiguous or unequivocal, but such an enduring celebration of the kind of small town ethos and sense of community that I wouldn't say shadow of a doubt repudiates, but it sort of says, Boy, is it oblivious to the other things in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And what yeah. a. W- I, I, and, I think about that scene where he like walks into the bank yeah. and like everyone's just having a, you know, having a normal day at the bank and he walks in and he just starts yelling like embezzlement at him. And, and everyone, yeah. everyone turns and like, you can't just say that in a bank. Uh, <laughs> he was like, even though it's a real thing that banks do, you can't, yeah. you can't say that. It's very offensive to the fabric of the community. <laughs> Well, you mentioned it's a wonderful life and, you know, you think of the scene in the bank and there where it's like, you know, where's your money? It's in Bill's house and Fred's house, you know, I mean, and yeah. in, in, in Shadow of a Doubt, it's a kind of more cynical variation on that idea. But I mean, also, mm-hmm. and I don't know what you guys have to say about this, but the ending ending of the movie, not the, not the action movie ending of the movie, which is pretty good, you know, all the stuff on the train, oh, yeah. but mm-hmm. the final choice, which to cite a movie that wouldn't be made for another 20 years, but kind of like to print the legend about uncle Charlie and not say what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, no, it's it's a, it's a very active choice. I mean, I think it's a really important part of, you know, like explaining, not even that has to be explained, but like, again, it, it, it clarifies her being passive through so much of the film, I think, because again, there's, um, you know, she's the only one who knows what her uncle is and she feels so deeply for her uncle and for her family and its image that she doesn't want to destroy or expose that either. So it's a very sort of complex emotional core that young Charlie has to, and that Teresa has to, has to capture as a, as a performer. Well, and and it, it is also what leads to all those suspenseful situations where she's both trying to simultaneously, she's trying to investigate her uncle. She's trying to protect you know, the immediate family who aren't sensing uh, because of, you know, maybe their naivety. They they aren't sensing this kind of darkness that is sitting at the dinner table with them. But then also she needs to perform for the family and perform for her uncle all at the same time. And it creates all these kind of like small gestures of, you know, you know, his, his menace sort of lingering just, you know, on the periphery where he's, you know, again, sitting ominously in a doorway or when those brief images where we get close-ups of his hands and he's clenching his fists and all you can imagine is the, you know, the implication being drawn of them, of them strangling, you know, uh, you know, some poor old woman, Mm -hmm. um, or the moments, you know, again, where he gets suddenly angry and he lets the facade, um, slip. I, I think that it's just so important that like, uh, Hitch really, he glides you through the house with this complex contradiction. And by the time you get to the end, as they go, he was this really terrible thing. And the whole town is kind of celebrating him in a way. Yeah. But 
would you, you think know, she, she, she to let everyone know would be to destroy the entire community in her eyes. Right, which is, you know, also the point of that deeply profound political tract, The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know. But but no, the movie that I actually think of, I mean, I, I mentioned Monsieur Verdoux, and I think that there is something to that, but to mention another, you know, Titan and throw another Titan in the ring for the mid-40s, I mean, you think about Orson Welles and The Stranger, right? Yes. Where you have this escaped Nazi who basically goes to this small town where he becomes like the center of attention and a raconteur, and in that movie... Of course, everyone, no one suspects him of being a Nazi because he's Orson Welles and he's the best. You know, he's so charming. The same way that Joseph Cotton is so charming in, um, in Shadow of a Doubt. And then those two characters would sort of meet again in The Third Man, you know, later on. But I mean, in The yep. Stranger, similarly, that theme, which is very pertinent, I think, to a pre- and post-fascist world in the mid-40s of, you know, what, is, what, is, what, what does it mean to recognize evil? Does evil actually have to like come out and tell you that it is evil before you can kind of see it? And if a society, if our town, you know, doesn't recognize that 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 it's in its midst, I mean, what does it say about the people who live here? Is it that they're too good and pure and decent to contemplate that possibility, or are they too oblivious to recognize it and even where it may be kind of festering within themselves? I find the end of Shadow of a Doubt so disturbing because she doesn't want to share this knowledge, as you say, because she thinks it's going to kind of ruin everyone's, you know, ruin everyone's life. But I mean, it may also be to some extent, her boyfriend notwithstanding, she kind of likes keeping a secret. Yeah, and it <laughs> does feel like even though, um, you know, the truth to, to the rest of the neighborhood and the family isn't actually totally revealed, they do have that moment where the mother gets in the car after uh, yeah. Charlie is almost killed. And she says, like, I just don't understand first the stairs. And so she's starting to get put something together where something is off. And even though she never gets to the, to the conclusion, it does still leave you with the thought that, that the neighborhood has some subconscious thoughts on what happened, regardless of what they may really think. Well, yeah. And just two more little, two more little things for your, your, your listeners that are fun to, to think about before we, before I guess we migrate to the stepfather, Santa Rosa, is a very similar backdrop to where the first version of Invasion the Body Snatchers is sent, is set. Hmm. The similar idea of kind of insidious evil in a kind of small California town in that midst. Mm -hmm. And it's also where the Cohen set the man who wasn't there as one of its many kind hmm. of implicit noir references. And while Man Who Wasn't There is absolutely much more about double indemnity and Postman Always Rings Twice and, and certain other films, I've always found the specific decision to set it where Shadow of a Doubt is set uh, really interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, and, 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 and two, as, as we are um, wrapping up to one, one thing I really um, wanted to say too, is I really love the, um, you know, when this becomes more of kind of like it feels like it's about to go murder mystery mode on, on us because uh, Uncle Charlie, uh, the back, like, probably a quarter of it is a lot of Uncle Charlie trying to kill young Charlie, yeah. Um, yeah. but all through implication. And this was some of my favorite stuff that I've actually seen in a Hitchcock film was just, again, young Charlie, as we kind of established, 
you know, uh, being aware of kind of the second plane of existence. And I like, and I think it's really important too, that, you know, she is made as much of kind of like, you know, even though that she chooses to be passive, there is, you know, she is the active agent. A lot of this is from her point of view as she is, you know, the, the house, uh, the sort of picture perfect domestic normalcy is literally being like weaponized against her as she, you know, he's like, uh, messing with little steps so that she might, trip and fall down the stairs and maybe die yeah. and it's um, a great and, uh, callback to when the father is talking with his friend and he says like I'd murder you so it didn't look like murder it's just <laughs> such a fun little connection to all those conversations well, yeah that's yeah, the, the that's the com- that's the comedy that I was kind of alluding to at the beginning where you, because of the counterpoint of all this hypothetical murder you're like who needs to pay more attention to this young Charlie or old Charlie because these are some pretty good tips <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah I, I i love the one friend herb where he's just like well I'm, i guess i couldn't really frame it as a suicide if i beat you to death with a crowbar <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is which is a, which is which is a, which is a good line a great yeah. a great part too when when the mother uh as an excuse to Charlie, because she gets really upset about all the murder talk because she knows what's going on with the uncle and all that, where she just goes, that's just how your father relaxes. That's just, <laughs> he just talks about murdering his friend. It's a fantastic line. I loved that. You know who else yeah, does I, that? You know who else does that is Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was the, the, when, when Irrational Man came out, he said, I spend my time, you know, thinking of the perfect murder. Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> and Woody Allen both love movies where people talk about murder hypothetically go go talk yeah. to your psychiatrists as to why <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah i i just really loved how because again the, the way that you know hitchcock gets a little bit more stylized in his filmmaking as he's acknowledging kind of like this world that these two are maneuvering and it's i i found it just really engaging watching her you know having to make decisions and you know sort of pulling in this information and then also the way that you know frequently it can of, often be you know, sort of like heightened by the style, by, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, all of a sudden a simple gesture like her uncle going up the stairs um, after, you know, his his name has been cleared because they found who they think is the killer on the other side of, you know, the country, despite right. the fact that he has already straight up admitted that he is the killer. And that's so fascinating is that technically if Charlie just, young Charlie never learned that, you know, there might have been nothing wrong. He might have just played the kind domestic uncle for a little while. Yeah. Um, and there would have been nothing going on there. But then she goes, he got away with it and I know. So the drama becomes she knows too much. He has to kill her. And again, a simple gesture like Uncle Charlie just running up the stairs will trigger the sense of like imbalance and there will be like this low angle shot of him at the top of the stairs, you know, feeling imposing or powerful or um, when after he does his monologue and she runs away uh, terrified because, you know, he's straight up just saying I'm the killer in front of the family without anyone but her noticing there's like a sudden tracking shot that like breaks from the table as uncle Charlie starts like chasing her down. That's really Mm -hmm. horrifying. And it's just, it's very interesting how he gets into the space of both of these characters are the only two psychologically aware of all of this sort of game that's happening between the two of them. And he captures it all through visual language. None of them really speak any of this to each other. And it leads to some really horrifying results, like her almost being murdered um, in the garage, which is just a really yeah. horrifying sequence with all that you know, smoke coming out of it and, and uh, following the logistics of him trying to get away with it once again, him going inside and like turning the music up 
so that the family can't hear her screaming in the backyard, you know, yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. It's which just it, really horrifying details like that that really set this over the top for me. Yeah, which which again is all about these little motifs or these little these little variations on like concealment and repression and tamping things down and yeah. quietude, which is why again that scene in the bar, the two shot in, in the bar is like almost the exact middle of the movie. You know, yeah. it's almost like the kind of the the crossover from you know, the, the 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 movie where everything is repressed, and the movie where even if it's not in the open to everyone else, we in the audience have no more ambiguity about what's going on, and uh, yeah, it's a pretty pretty exhilarating and creepy second half for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, pivoting towards a reductive rating round on Shadow of a Doubt, which for uh, you, Adams, we uh, remove all the words, all the nuance, give the movie a rating between one and five. But it's also turned into closing statements and any uh, lines or scenes that we maybe just didn't happen to get to that you want to bring up here at the end. And usually I go first, but I'm actually going to let you and Jamie go first because I'm actually on the fence on my rating on this one. This is my second time watching it. Um, Um, I will just say... uh, I'll give it a four out of five. I think this was really strong. I really, really enjoyed it. I think this is my... Uh, I haven't watched a lot of Hitchcock, honestly, but this, this is... This like your fourth or fifth, probably? Fourth or fifth, I think. And I, I got to say, I mean, it's it's not a hot take, but he's an amazing filmmaker. Um, I love the line. I just will mention this before I wrap it up totally. I love that line when he's uh, letting Charlie know everything that he's been doing. He's basically revealing himself as the villain, as the killer. And uh, he says, you live in a dream, you're a sleepwalker. And it's just, uh, I really like that line to, ch- to express her kind of innocence and kind of her uh, awakening after he exposes himself. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's just, this was, this was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that, that and the follow-up line, too. Uh, do you know if you rip off the fronts of the houses, you'd find swine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> God damn. He's <laughs> got away with his words for sure. But yeah, strong uh, for you, Adam. Uh, it's it's a it's a five. You know, I nice. I would put it I would put it on the the short list of my of my favorite Hitchcocks. I think that it's a um, I, I I think it's a a, a pretty much a, a pretty much flawless space that it operates in, and I'm particularly sympathetic. Well, not sympathetic to it, but I'm particularly uh, affectionate towards it because. It, 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 it exists in a subtler register than some of Hitchcock's other stuff. That is in no way a criticism of that other stuff. There's a reason mm-hmm. that movies like Psycho and Vertigo and Strangers of a Train are part of the lexicon of popular filmmaking where they get remade and ripped off and, and, and reconfigured mm-hmm. for decades. What I kind of like about Shadow of a Doubt is how self-contained and small it is. It mm-hmm, doesn't yeah. feel like a Hitchcock film that belongs to the whole world all the time. You can feel, even in the context of a world-famous filmmaker like Hitchcock, like you are having something of a self-contained private experience while wa- while watching it instead of sharing it with everybody through osmosis, you know, the second you see two seconds of it. Hell yeah. Well, I I think I've been convinced. I think I'm going to be going up to the five on it. This was my second nice. or my, maybe even my third watch on it. And previously this was always kind of like more in the in, in the second tier of Hitchcock films for me. But on this watch, something really did just click for me more um, watching this. So I'm going to go with the with the five on this one. And I think a huge part of that is is once again, you know, we, we, we talked about how, you know, there's this, I think Hitchcock said it was his favorite movie because he loved so much the idea of just 
just the basic idea of bringing menace into a small town, bringing yeah. it into a picturesque kind of surface and sort of investigating the kind of ugly sickness underneath it. And not only that, but how those two things can kind of coexist. We're going to be talking about it in Rear Window next week, but there's something about how you indulge the thrill and you critique the thrill in, in similar ways. And I feel like that's something he gets at with the young Charlie character, which is that, you know, she has these um, this the this skill she has this ability she has this power um, that she shares with her with her uncle and it both uh, thrills her because you know she she is playing a game that you know she's playing a game for adults it's to say um, but at the same time she wonders if that also makes her you know a, a sick and a lonely person in a similar way that you know she's she's kind of and I, I feel like the way that it gets into that character and the way that Wright performs it especially really really clicked um, for me on on this watch and then especially the way that you know he literally weaponizes the house as a murder tool against her um, <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in that final part um, and you know her also wrestling with not wanting to shatter that 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 image I, I was really really struck by you know her watching her mom break down because she's sending her uncle away and being like this should be this it, sort of dramatically that moment is a relief moment. It's like, you know, she's found the ring. She has a way to, you know, expose him and she's telling him that. And so she's won, uh, the sort of like the suspense game that we've been watching unfold. And that moment is nothing but sadness. Um, just because, you know, even by sending him away, she's just harming, you know, everything that she previously believed in before her uncle shattered that for her. And I think that that emotional experience gets across really, really well, um, in the film. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, I think that is going to wrap it up for Shadow of a Doubt. We are going to be right back and we're going to be talking about The Stepfather. Good boy. Good boy. Good boy. Good boy. Hi, honey. He's just some crazy creep. Don't you talk to your father that way. He's not my father. How can you even bear to let him do it? Stop it! We have to talk, honey. About what? about what is happening to our family. I'm taking care of it. He scares me, Dr. Pondre. Who am I here? Help me! Help! You're a very bad girl. The Stepfather. All right, we are back and we are talking about The Stepfather, the 1987 American psychological thriller film directed by uh, Joseph Rubin. Uh, the film uh, very broadly stars uh, Terry O'Quinn as a character named Jerry Blake, this sort of like seemingly mild-mannered uh, sort of working father um, who uh, may or may not uh, just murder entire families. Um, <laughs> but before he does that, he quickly adopts new identities uh, in, in, in other towns and leaves town and um, sets up a, a new life. And it, I think it's all kind of perfectly captured in the um, opening uh, sequence of this film, which ha- opens with like a, a great little creepy sort of jingly, almost like Danny Elfman sounding kind of synth score yeah, to it. For sure. Um, as this sort of like bloody bearded man walks into a bathroom, he starts stripping, putting his clothes into a suitcase and he showers and he shaves. He comes out. He's a completely different guy. And what does he do? Walks downstairs to the house and to this sort of like, 
uh, wide shot that kind of like pulls out of the house to reveal everything that's happening inside. And it is just an absolute massacre of kind of like blood and bodies and a dead little girl holding like a stuffed bear. It's a really uh, <laughs> shocking image followed by a tracking shot that takes you away from the massacre and, and into um, the suburbs. Um, yeah. And it, it, it really does set kind of like the uh, the the contradiction that we're going to ex- be experiencing watching this film, which is something similar to Shadow of a Doubt, which is, again, this kind of picturesque American suburbia and the sort of more dark, seedy, kind of upsetting things that kind of are, are can be linger- lingering underneath well, them. A, f- mm-hmm. a few things about, about that opening scene. I mean, for one... He Ruben is doing Hitchcock even before the movie starts properly because we get a camera floating through the window. It's the same opening shot as Psycho, right? Right. You know, not going into a hotel window for a tryst, but you know, to to seeing uh, you know Terry O'Quinn showering. Um, the 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 moment when he walks out of the house and he's whistling Camp Town Races. Uh, evokes a shadow of a doubt with the whistling of the Merry Widow and also M with Peter Lorre um, singing in the Hall of the Mountain King. So this yep. idea of a serial killer with a kind of theme song. I mean, it's even like Jaws, yeah. you know, the shark The shark has his music. Um, there's a, the, the script for the film is by Donald Westlake who wrote the Parker novels. And I don't know how much you guys, how much you've read the Parker novels, but there's one called The Man with the Getaway Face which is like a perfect encapsulation of what O'Quinn is doing at that beginning, you know, kind of trading okay. one, fa- one, one, one face for another. He's, he's not disguising his identity. He's just, you know, changing into a more, uh, an even more clean cut, you know, version of himself and passing completely unnoticed. And mm. strangely, the opening of the film, and you guys may find this a stretch and it's not intentional, it has always reminded me of the, uh, the beginning of The Terminator with the naked Arnold you know, kind of re, re you know, get getting dressed, reinventing himself, and kind of walking off in the world to do harm. Yeah, I think he, that, he, he does kind of have that kind of uh, sort of like ob, ob, obsessive, uh, sort of like on a mission kind of well, aspect to him. Well, I think that he's a very kind of genteel dad bod Terminator. You know, <laughs> yeah. and and what's at stake is not. Uh, you know the rise of the machines, but what's at stake is, and this is where the screenplay for the film is is fairly blunt. But you know what's at stake is the American dream, not as it exists for anybody except for him, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting because Uncle Charlie doesn't believe at all in the accoutrements or the the trappings of polite American society, whereas J- Jerry Blake seems to believe in them to a homicidal extent, and he can only control them kind of under his own roof. Mm-hmm. That's where the stepfather is a lot like Shadow of a Doubt, where all the menace in the movie, and actually all the murders, are very much about like houses and domestic spaces, and so you're not safe at home. Like it's very much a movie made after Halloween in that sense too. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's, but that's, I mean a, it, that's a big point of reference, I think. Yeah, but I mean, in Halloween, you know, Michael Myers is other and wears a mask, and the dads are just kind of ineffectual. And here, it's like the dad is Michael Myers, or the dad is the Terminator. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like an a trashy 80s version of uh, Bigger Than Life, you know, where James Mason knows <laughs> yeah. better. But except that James Mason is being, you know, driven crazy by cortisone and and and, and uh, Terry O'Quinn in this movie is just kind of driven crazy by America, you know? He's yeah. driven crazy by, by, by Father Knows Best. And the, 
the, the script is not subtle on those points, but I actually like how hard it hits them because in a cheap little piece of exploitation pulp, which is really bloody and gory and has completely unnecessary nudity and all of that stuff, <laughs> you, you, you kind of like when it hits the thematic nail on the head like that. Like I love when he's with his new family and sort of meeting the whole town has kind of come out to meet him the way they do Uncle Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt. He's like, call me corny, but I believe in the American dream. And you're just watching this being like, yeah, you do. You do. And, you know, you're going to kill everybody to, you know, <laughs> to you're, you're, you're going to you know, <laughs> kill everybody to get it. And again, su- subtlety in that case is overrated. Yeah. yeah when I, I love, too, that he's a real estate agent, too, selling the entire neighborhood, their Absolutely. houses as well. Like he, he's literally selling people the idea. You know, kids, I, that's what he says, too. He says, I'm selling people not their homes, but the American dream themselves. He wants to participate in the society. But at the same time, you know, there are kind of complications to it. And it seems like that is what kind of upsets him is when there is a family dynamic that isn't meant for a postcard. If there is, you know, a, a death in the family and there's a grieving wife and there's a grieving daughter and that strains the relationship, which is what happens, you know, to his his new step family that he has, uh, this, you know, really upsets him. The idea that I think uh, she gets expelled from school because she gets into fights at school. And his line is, girls don't get expelled from yeah, school girl, or whatever right. it is. You know, yeah, but so the, it's like it's, it's one of those things where he's trying to impose – it's a different thing where he's trying to impose the picture as quality and he will do it violently um, in, in order to you know achieve that postcard uh, family. Well, he will and what trips him up in this movie and it's again interestingly tied to Shadow of a Doubt is I think the – the this the 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 kind of sexual awakening of the teenage daughter in this case played by Jill uh, Jill Sholin, where here it's not at all an attraction towards her stepfather. I mean, in that sense, it's different than Shadow of a Doubt. She never likes yeah. him, right? She doesn't like yeah, him yeah. from the beginning. She she, she sees even suspects him. him like from the very beginning. She, it seems. Yeah, she suspects him from the start. But what frustrates her about him is that she's a little unruly, and yeah, you know, she has this difficulty, and she's not over her father. But he also seems just driven absolutely mad by her by her by 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 the fact of her sexuality it just really Mm -hmm. seems to bother him right he wants to infantilize her and relate to her and treat her like a little girl because her being a a kind of pert you know full to bursting teenager really undermines Mm -hmm. this kind of old-fashioned authority i love the idea that he's kind of like a guy from the 50s who ends up in an 80s movie (laughs) just kind of like like cheesy cheesy music and like again a, a a really kind of luridly faux Hitchcockian shower scene because the, the stepfather wears its references all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so th- that there's that scene at the end after he's hit Shelly Hack's character with the phone receiver and he's having one of his little breakdowns and, you know, Stephanie just comes home to take a shower. And yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. movie, you're so gross. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> no, it's so unnecessary. Yeah. There, this, is, this is so... So unnecessary. I mean, there's a level on which is any shower scene unnecessary, but I mean, it is. It's it's just uh, incredibly prurient and 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 yeah. sort of piling on, but it does cinch the link I think between what it is subconsciously that is driving him kind of crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, 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 when when it comes to her sexuality, I think of like that goodnight kiss that the the boy at school gives, and yeah. he runs out the door and accuses the guy of of, of rape. He's like, uh, she's only sixteen years old, and I love his reaction. He's like, so am I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, so, yeah, so, so am I. <laughs> Now here's the here's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Really, the 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 secret center of this whole podcast. Do you guys notice the poster for Our Town on her wall? I did not notice. that. I didn't know. 
Yeah, in her childhood room, she's got all kinds of cool 80s stuff. Like she's listening, I think, to The Unforgettable Fire by U2. Oh, and right. there's and there's some other kind of 80s pinup. But there's a poster for a production of Our Town on her wall. And wow. that's where the um that's where some Thorn of the Wilder. little So yeah, Thorn Wilder, which is where some of again that 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 self-conscious or that that elusive allusive, not elusive, allusive quality that the movie has really starts to come into focus with regard to Shadow of a Doubt, right? I mean, these are not deep core significant things. They're kind of just like little spot thing. They're like, where's Waldo jokes. But I think that's a pretty good one in terms of, uh, in terms yeah. of what Joseph Rubin and Westlake are kind of working towards. I love the mm. idea of a movie that is just straight up ugly pulp, but that's pretty, pretty smart and clever and sardonic about it. And so like the little mm. Thornton Wilder poster on her wall is a, a pretty good skeleton key to unlocking kind of why I think this movie's kind of better than it actually is because there's like Mm. the level on which it's not great yeah i I think the main thing that kind of hurt this one for me is that it it just i mean it's i don't think it's like it's it's not something that you know it necessarily has to do but it doesn't quite have that same dynamic that i loved so much from shadow of a doubt like comparing the two that of of the two figures kind of maneuvering and playing each other and kind of like the wits right. and the tension of it because there's there's a beginning part where she starts to suspect him and there is actually a, a great little sequence where she like uh, mails a reporter yeah. to find a photo of the killer and the reporter you know sends the uh, photo to her in the mail being like this is the guy who previously killed his family does this look like your dad and there is a scene that they rip <laughs> straight from shadow of a doubt where he goes to the mailbox and grabs the mail and sees it and he like he freak he bugs out as soon as he sees you know that it's his photo in the thing and he gets the mail first and he gives her the cosmopolitan magazine and it's very similar to the scene where um uncle charlie grabs the newspaper and he starts ripping up the newspaper with his story in it um except for that young charlie actually catches that because you know she's on the same level as him in in many different ways and what's interesting is that he slips a a different photo into the you know the the actual mail that she receives and she goes oh so it's not him and then it basically drops that you know for the rest of the movie and then it's replaced with a more kind of a little bit more of you know of an of the time kind of generic slasher trajectory or it's not bad it's still frequently like stylish and and tense and everything like that but like you know the plotting just gets a little bit more generic because she's you know she's not going nancy drew mode anymore you don't really get those amazing scenes where they're both on each other's wavelength or or you know even she is identifying with him or she's you know worried or concerned uh, about him even though he does do some psycho stuff like when when terry o'quinn goes breakdown mode in the scenes where he thinks he's alone He's freaking out. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But she only sees that. that once, and then immediately, you know, she's just like, "Oh, you know, whatever." That was that wasn't very much. It's fine. Uh, I also love that moment with her when she's with her friend because she gets that that picture, and it's revealed that uh, it, you know he couldn't possibly be the killer because this is the picture she received. And this the friend says something along the lines of, uh, "Well, why are you disappointed? That means your stepfather isn't Jack the Ripper." And it, it reminded, reminded me, of, me of Rear Window. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Just the fact that it's like she was she was almost hoping that that this this uh, this man that she already didn't like is Jack the Ripper, so that he can get out of her family, um, even if it would mean that he's an a uh, psychopathic murderer. It's a, well, a, it's a very a, funny little callback. Well, it's a movie that in the back half, and you know, it, it really does conform to that that Roger Ebert idea of the idiot plot. 
you know, where like mm-hmm. a lot of characters really are pretty dim or pretty slow or pretty unlucky to just mechanically contrive everything that happens in the last 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I felt really bad because I, I spent the whole movie thinking that eventually she was going to team up with the young brother-in-law of the previous family. Yeah, because there's a whole subplot yeah. where he's, you know, he's, in, he's investigating. Him. He's investigating the guy and he's uncovering the information. You thought yeah. that they would, you know, I predictably I thought that they were going to, you know, join forces and they were going to, you know, try to try mm. to, you know, no, reach he's the same a, conclusions at the same time. He's Scatman Crothers in The Shining. Yeah, he, yeah, he literally shows up to deliver a gun to the fight. I was settings. just going to say, I, when that happened, I was a little bit, I will say, disappointed just because they spend a decent amount of time with the guy. It's mostly based on the the, the daughter and the stepfather, but but there's, st- there's still enough of him that I thought he would turn into some type of significant character, but no, he's he's just to deliver the gun. He, so yeah, he literally shows up at the house, he gets gutted immediately, drops <laughs> the gun so that there's a gun in you know added into the climactic yeah. set piece. Like, that's literally his entire purpose, but, and that kind of writing, unfortunately, it's just, it's, it, there's just no way it can be as interesting as, you know, the bits where we get to see Wright, like, perform at the dinner table, you know, sort of yeah. like the domestic happy daughter knowing 100 percent that her uncle is a killer sitting right next to her there's just nothing quite as as tense as that going but in the but in the midst of all that machine oh sorry what were you gonna say oh i was just gonna say i also really enjoyed um like another intriguing part that's just better than than that kind of subplot with the with the one uh the one guy that's that brings the gun is that the part where it unveils that jerry's wearing a toupee and then he puts together another getup and goes to another home and starts to like <laughs> yeah. start a different family with somebody else that's single. Uh, those are all the moments I was really intrigued with. Yeah, and I felt just distracted by uh, the other subplot for whatever reason they threw in there. Well, what? Well, what? But what I love is I love these little moments of the of a, a kind of a sublime, not even trashiness, but kind of just a sublime creepiness in the midst of all the machinery. I mean, the re- the reason I love the stepfather, I don't know how personal people get on the show or not personal this isn't personal i'm not going to say i am the stepfather i'm just going to say i'm just i'm just just remembering watching it as a kid yeah it's it's when terry o'quinn is in the scene in the in the kitchen with 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 shelly hack susan you know who's sort of like um lolita's mom in lolita you know she's Mm kind of like you know again with humbert humbert marrying her to get to the daughter there's an element of that but she's you know she's kind of oblivious you know nice nice lady yeah, and and you know, very nice to Jerry, but she's she's kind of just be there to, to 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 not get what her husband's really up to. And when she yeah. finally laboriously is like, "I called your work, and they say you weren't there, and where have you been? And you're crazy, you know." And he he, he tries to explain away, and he gives himself the wrong name. You know, he calls himself yeah. by one of his other alter egos, and he has this one little line which they ended up putting on the poster, where he just mm-hmm. says, "Who am I here?" And <laughs> he says, "Wait a minute." Wait a minute. Yeah, who, which who version of myself am I? Yeah. And when I was when I when I when I was however old I was when I saw that movie because this was one of those things I used to rent from a, a store called Video On on Bayview at at Merton in Toronto, which is now gone. The strip mall is something else. And this guy used to rent me restricted movies all the time. This guy <laughs> Anthony, he's sort of like the 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 epicenter of me seeing movies I shouldn't have seen when I was ten or eleven. Yeah. That line reading just scared the absolute shit oh, out yeah. of me. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great line, and it reminds me of that kind of perverse joke that Nolan threw in in Memento of the "I'm chasing this guy." Yeah. Oh no! Oh, wait, he's, he's chasing, chasing me. me. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> I, because I mean, I think, and and the movie was very well reviewed. I mean, Polly and Kale famously loved it. You know, one of the one of the times she got something right, she really liked the stepfather. <laughs> and, and, and his performance kind of made him a star. You know, it's funny to think that like a little B movie. You know, film that made like about three million bucks at the box office in 1987 could kind of make someone a star, but he really leveraged this into a lot of steady work. He's mm. quite brilliant in this film. Oh yeah, 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 he, really and, good. And it's not a subtle performance, but he's scary and funny, and he looks right. And there's a creepiness to the way that he hit the the identity shifting played at the time off of like what people were reading and learning about killers like Ted Bundy. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. But it it comes at around the same time as Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, the Michael Rooker character just is who he is. He doesn't pretend anything. He just kind of like leads with who he is, and he's just cutting this swath of carnage through mostly rural, sort of rundown spaces. And mm-hmm. the stepfather, it's just very insidious. He's just as savage as as Henry is, or as Michael Myers is. But that idea that he can pass for a kind of mm-hmm. lame and pass for nerdy and pass in a way for like a character out of the fifties, like the return of the fifties repressed. It's yeah. so, so aligned with a political moment of Reaganism and mourning of America and what's hidden in there. I think a great double bill from that same year or close to that same year would be to watch this at the same time as they live, which yeah. I'm sure is, which I'm sure is a movie you've done on this show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we have such a <laughs> they, good one. They, 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 they interestingly kind of go well together. One is sci-fi and, and one is a psychological thriller, but they're both just very much about surfaces, I think. Yeah, another really cool parallel scene with uh, Shadow of a Doubt and uh, the stepfather is when they're having the, the barbecue and like the pool party or whatever. And it's the same scene where where um, Uncle Charlie and, and Shadow of a Doubt is going off about oh, like, sure. the, the old wo- the old women and how you know they're not necessarily viewed as humans in his eyes and all that, and and um, and the stepfather in his version in the barbecue uh, reveals himself briefly, but no one really you know pays attention to it, and he just says they're like, how could somebody do that? How could somebody kill their entire family? And he just yeah, they're reading the newspaper responds. of the previous family that's been killed, right? Yeah, yeah, and he just calmly responds with, hmm, "Maybe they disappointed him." Yeah. <laughs> and it's just—it's such a such great a psycho line. answer. And it, yeah, and it doesn't quite have the same uh, uh, punch, just because with with Shadow of a Doubt, you have Charlie in the scene as well that knows what's going on, and with that scene in the stepfather, it's more so for the audience member, like just the person sitting and watching mm-hmm. the film. But uh, it's still a really good parallel, and I, I loved that moment. Yeah, the, yeah. the most uh, the most effective stretch for me, honestly, was when the psychiatrist started trying to investigate him. Oh yeah, um, because well, because the daughter the, is seeing a psychiatrist mo- and, and talking about him. Well, that's the most Hitchcockian passage, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. well, especially too, because it's it's the one where there is you know the psychiatrist kind of has some idea that you know he he's trying to investigate the stepfather because uh, uh, hearing enough stories from. Um, the daughter in their therapy sessions has gotten him interested and he kind of wa- and and the the father the stepfather avoids him he won't set up an appointment you know to just talk with him as like you know psychiatrist to uh, you know stepfather to talk about the daughter's uh, therapy sessions so he sets up you know a a house meeting with him where he's gonna go and he's gonna go take a look at a house he might buy a house um, and there's sort of this unspoken I- investigation 
happening as he's kind of probing him with questions mm-hmm. and the stepfather starts to realize that he's being probed and he doesn't like that and it's where he breaks that facade with him and straight up just uh kills him with a two by four like right there yeah. and then with- takes him takes him out to like the back and he like blows up his car and everything like that and the, <laughs> the real cherry on top to this sequence is that he eventually goes uh back to the house to the daughter into the garage and he makes his way back in and he reports, you know, he's just like, I'm so sorry to talk to you and, and tell you this information like about your psychiatrist. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that happened. He just he ran off the road and he died. And there's such, such this perverse moment where he says it so like almost affectless and he hugs her. And she is, you know, expressing so much real emotional pain about this. And obviously she has no idea that, you know, he could possibly be behind it. And so there is a little bit of tension in that moment where, you know, he's holding her. And smiling. And and, 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 and he's completely aware of how he's just manipulated the entire, you know, environment. You're forgetting the great line there, which was also in the trailer, which is he puts the corpse in the car and says, buckle up. (laughs) <laughs> yes for yeah. safety which is which is again one of like <laughs> and then maybe whistles s- off again yeah and then whistles off again because there's these moments again where it's hitting it very very unsubtly you know i think at one point he actually says you know father knows best and you can see the exploitation movie trailer being sort of cut around that yeah for sure they like like it's not a it's not an austere film in that sense Mm-hmm. But that but that scene, the murder with the two by four is great, not just because it's a good gory two by four murder, but because it's in a house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I, I love you have that it's opening with a piece scene. Of the house even. With a piece yeah, of the house. Yeah, that he's like selling the American dream with. It's great. Yeah, yeah you know, and then, and, and then you get four. the psycho disposing of the body scene a little bit there too, as he's dumping it and yeah. Yeah, the, the psycho body disposal. But I mean all the little and Hitchcock would call them i mean they're, they're not MacGuffins because they're not things that drive the plot but all the little touches in the same way shadow of a doubt's got a bunch of them like the newspaper and the emerald ring i i love yeah. some of the things in the stepfather like i love the uh the birdhouse you know oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah which is you know sim- 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 symbolically you know cut down at the end of the movies have to be like i never liked you anyway stepfather i mean it's very kind of you know very mm. very pat little pat little ending and very weird kind of pairing with blue velvet at the end. I mean, blue velvet, you have the, the return of the, the return of the Robins and the Robin with the bird in his beak and that, you know, the birds and cycle life go on. And the end of the stepfather is just like cut down this birdhouse that I made with my crazy, not dad, (laughs) but it's moving forward. But even the, even the last line he has where he says to her, you know, I love you. And you sort of go, did you? I mean, you didn't, you, 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 (laughs) you, you, but I'm not making fun of the movie when I say that I'm saying it's really Mm -hmm. kind of creepy because Mm -hmm. this is a guy who loves the idea of these things, but he has no actual love for people and all people do to him. The second he meets them and talks to them is they, is they disappoint him. And, you know, as a, I mean, a movie like the shining is way more poetically about this kind of male rage and the rage of being at the head of the household and you, you know, you, you like the idea of a wife and kid, but you don't like the way that they actually act, right? Because kids are annoying right. and, and sharing your space with another person is is annoying. And that 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 one way of looking at the film is as a very <laughs> perverse satire of male commitment phobia. Except here mm-hmm. it's not someone who's afraid of becoming a husband and father. It's that he wants to do it so much. But it needs to be perfect. It needs yeah, to but be if it's, his version of perfect. His version of perfect, which again it ties it to something like 
ties it to something like bigger than life and ties it to this kind of swelled outside controlling male ego, which mm. a lot of horror movies don't necessarily take that as their, as their subject. I mean, it's very, it, yeah, it, it eventually it, explodes into a slasher set piece where he's like, come to daddy, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which again is, is, is much less chilling than that opening mm. scene, which is one of, as you guys alluded to it, I mean, it is a terrifying scene. Oh, oh, horrifying. Yeah. And just yeah, to I, I, linger I, on that, like the child's lifeless body right before it cuts yeah. to the to the neighborhood again. Horrible, it's like, yeah. damn, like, yeah, very, it, very. So, 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 it, so it gets cheesier as it goes on. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the cheesiness sells out or undermines what the movie is actually about. It actually kind yeah. of may, maybe makes it so that you can kind of take it. Whereas a more, <laughs> whereas a more realistic film, like a movie like The Stepfather made like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or something would probably be, you know. <laughs> Would 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 be unbearable. Yeah, that'd be yeah. stomach churning for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, and 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 we'll say too, even though it goes kind of generic slasher a little bit in 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 its final reel, there, like there is some some cool sequencing, like him breaking through the mirror through the door, oh, trying sure. to like get oh, her yeah. in the bathroom or going up into the attic where you get kind of like that blue directional lighting kind of hitting him. I love the small comedic detail where she like, like literally like hurls a, a, a sled at him uh, <laughs> while he's trying to like come up the top of the attic and stuff like that. And I do like the final gesture too, where, you know, she stabs him and he says, I love you. And he does go full Terminator to- mode too, where the mom uh, gets the gun and starts like shooting him in the legs and he's like falling down the stairs but that won't stop him he's gonna keep going up he's gonna get his daughter and i love the detail too that she just stabs him right in the heart yeah very specifically as he's you know saying i love you and then you know rolls down the steps and and dies there and symbolically she she takes down the birdhouses that he was always um uh building in in the tool shed and and things like that where he was going kind of psycho mode and and things like that uh, but pivoting towards the reductive rating round here on uh, the stepfather, the stepfather I think gets um, a, a high three from me. I think mostly because I was uh, maybe it's unfair too, but mostly just because I was comparing it to Shadow of a Doubt, I was yeah. less taken with you know how it, it doesn't make the daughter as much of an active player in the suspense sequencing that takes place. Actually, she she completely kind of forgets about everything that she previously thought about him for a good portion of the movie until it kind of does go kind of like Halloween mode on him but there is some really effective um tent sequences especially because this is again more from the point of view as well of the stepfather and the killer more than it is um you know sort of like the the young girl kind of like wrestling um with that um and i i think it also really does walk well that line of the picturesque domesticity i love that i looked up the cinematographer and saw saw that he went on to like basically make uh, mostly shoot like bright looking like rom-coms uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of gives the movie this nice kind of like surface uh, shine to it lots of yeah. smiles and sweater vests and like perfect green lawns and white trimming and all of that um, before you know it gets into the realm of like a, a full-out um, slasher uh, film well, and doubly- so even even if it misses you know some of the qualities that I liked um, from Shadow of a Doubt, like the the kind of that tension of that undercurrent, of that 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 feeling uh, in the visual language of you know that that dark underbelly. Um, I I do think that uh, you know despite not quite seeing the contradictions wrestled with you know as much in the family, it's mostly with the killer. Um, I I do think that there is something um, happening here 
and and something shocking that that does take place just the contradiction of those two kind of um images that are taking place um in the film and i did actually think of halloween as kind of like a reference point even though halloween i think actually maybe even gets a little bit closer to capturing that feeling of um that undercurrent quality of dread and seeing it and feeling it before it actually reaches out to you and tries to kill you we talked about on our halloween episode how much jamie lee curtis is like the only one who senses that there's something kind of wrong going on here Mm -hmm. um um, but you know, I, I had a good time with it and, uh, I saw a lot of people kind of calling it kind of like the lifetime version of like a slasher film or something like that. But it, it, it is more psychologically engaging than calling it just that. And it is a great little sort of autumn horror movie slasher. Um, and O'Quinn, I think a huge part of it is O'Quinn's performance. Yeah. Um, he's unbelievably he, good. He's, he, he's very good. We well, you mentioned John Lindley and you know, he, we should say he shot Field of Dreams, which is a dad classic. Yes. And Father <laughs> of the Bride, which is a dad classic. Yeah. And, Ple- and Pleasantville, which is a small town classic. And uh, Stepfather is quite quite beautifully shot. I, I, the rating I'm going to give it, if I can give it a rating, is it's probably a three in reality, but it's like a four and a half for me personally. Yeah. <laughs> so you can so you can you can average those two things because I just it. I just associate it with those wonderful slightly clandestine memories of uh you know going 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 to the video store and taking something home based on the box art which a million people have their yeah. own versions of that story but it was a movie that I encountered you know not out of a book or not seeing with my family or on television or, or later in life where you can go through and find all kinds of, as you guys would call them, you know, sleazoid films. It was a very pure experience of I'm going to rent this movie because of the box, because it looks violent and I'm going to watch it without telling my parents. And it's just very embedded and impressed upon my memory in that sense. So, I mean, watching it again on YouTube, it's about a three star movie, but the memories of it are uh, priceless. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, for you, Jamie. I, yeah, I, I would also give it the uh, the high three out of five for now. Honestly, I think I might revisit it, though, because I did have a lot of fun with it. The moment where he kind of breaks down his identity in the kitchen right before he reveals to his wife that who, who he is, uh, I think yeah. is really, really good. And I honestly would have liked a little bit more with him balancing his different identities because we don't get too much of it. But I, I would have been interested in seeing him interact with that family he was starting to manipulate um, a little bit more before he started to break down his identity. I think that was just a very interesting part of the film. Um, but that being said, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, O'Quinn is uh, incredible in it, really, really good, and uh, yeah, I think I'd, I think I'm going to revisit this one, but uh, for now, it's the high three. Really, Stepfa- really good st- stepfather web series win, you know? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, a quibby, a quibby, stepfather series. We need it. <laughs> It'll happen, All right. let's be honest. <laughs> I think that will uh, wrap it up for everything this week. Uh, that was Shadow of a Doubt, 1943, and The Stepfather from 1987. Thanks so much, Adam, for joining us and for bringing oh. these um, films with you. Before you head out here, uh, this is the part of the show where if you've got anything coming up that you want to plug, you can do it right here. Well, it may or may not have been announced at this point on social media, but what the hell. I'm, I've got another book coming out similar to the ones... Uh, that I've done for Abrams on Paul Thomas Anderson and um, the Coens, as you can guess, it's an illustrated critical study of Jason Reitman, um, <laughs> a really just terrific filmmaker whose career owes nothing to nepotism, just a visual uh, virtuoso 
Um, no one will ever forget films like Up in the Air and Tully. No, uh, I wrote a book on uh, on on David Fincher, which Abrams will be putting out. Um, you know, just 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 in time to uh, just in time to ride the mank backlash. Uh, but you know, yeah. you know, a, a, a semi-deserved backlash in that case. But yeah, I've got a. Book coming out on David Fincher, you can always find, um, or lucky to say, you can always find my film writing in, uh, in, 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 in The Ringer and, and, and Cinemascope. And uh, as far as what's coming up, I'm just going to uh, stay in my, my picture-perfect home with, with, with my kids, you know? Just, <laughs> That's right. Just, yeah, you're not going to become the stepfather. <laughs> no. That, well, okay. you know, that, the, 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 the Joker meme with I'm going to become the stepfather is just not quite famous enough to do it. But I, I hope not. Cause, you we'll know, make the, it happen. The, 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 the schools are open again, so no, I'll just be here. Uh, I'll I'll just be here, uh, you know, hanging out and, and listening to this and and thanking you guys for for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming yeah, on. This was this was great. All right. Well, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time with your guys's bonus episode where sort of bouncing off of uh, Adam's double feature where he did here. Where we did kind yeah. of Hitchcock and then an update, uh, an 80s sort of slasher update on Hitchcock. We are going to be talking about uh, perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, Rear Window from 1954 <laughs> by Maybe. Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to be talking about. Uh, voyeurism and feeling trapped in your apartment and bored as hell and wanting yep. to just do nothing but uh, watch screens and uh, engage it. in stories. Uh, <laughs> something no one is feeling right now, I'm sure. No. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Rear Window and we're going to be pairing it with Joe Dante's The Burbs yes. from uh, 1988. I didn't double check. Maybe eight, nine? Um, I think it's 89. We're going to be talking about... We're going to be talking about The Burbs, which uh, stars Tom Hanks and is kind of Joe Dante's kind of uh, absurd slapstick uh, update (laughs) on uh, Rear Window, which is a lot of fun. Yep. So that's what you can expect for next week's bonus episode. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. And then in one week's time, we're going to be back with a friend of the show making, I think, his third uh, appearance as a guest on the show, Perry Rulland. Hell yeah. And he is going to be bringing with him a gory double feature, from what I understand, of Mermaid in a Manhole and (laughs) House with the Laughing Windows. Great titles. Great Uh, titles. Haven't seen any of these, know nothing about them, except for that Mermaid in a Manhole is the sixth movie in what is called the the Guinea Pig movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And every single one of the Guinea Pig movies sounds like your worst nightmare. Um, it's how it, it, it sounds just like the, the goriest, craziest shit you've ever heard. Excited um, friend of the show and artist for the show, Trevor Henderson, his review of mermaid in the manhole was one word and it was you. <laughs> <laughs> what was the rating? <laughs> uh, three stars because I All think right. he was conflicted about how gross it was. <laughs> He's like, I don't know how to feel about this. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And so, by the way, Perry, all- if you end up uh, listening to this episode, and I'll probably tell you when I talk to you, but uh, watch Sungazer, and it is incredible. So great, great work, man. Hell yeah. You go, Perry. We'll talk to you Absolutely. Uh, in, in just two weeks' time. Um, yep. But yeah, that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.